0: This show has frequently covered films that find enduring success after flopping upon their initial release. People like getting behind an underdog, both when it comes to the story itself and in the story about the story. Aside from maybe It's a Wonderful Life, His Girl Friday is possibly the most influential film in this idiom. Just about every romantic comedy has been borrowing from it for decades. It's one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite movies, as is Aaron Sorkin, and frankly, it'd be more surprising if it wasn't.
1: Holy shit, yeah, you're right.
0: The Pepper Tony Stark dynamic in the Marvel movies is shamelessly riffing on *His Girl Friday*, and you could say that the rest of the MCU is lifting Hoxie and banter for much of the rest of its dialogue to the point where, when Iron Man replaces Jarvis with a new AI, he names it Friday. Got
1: a nice Irish accent. <laughs>
0: The last season of BoJack Horseman features an ongoing His Girl Friday pastiche for one of its many subplots, (laughs) and that's just the tip of the iceberg. This film has legs, and it extends for miles.
1: I mean, so did Rosalind Russell. Oh my god, she's tall.
0: And I think part of that is due to the film being in the public domain, but also tied to it just being a great film. We'll be getting more into that in the episode itself. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive.
1: And I'm Rachel, back again as usual.
0: This is my pick, and you had never seen it before. No,
1: I had never seen it before. I mean, I I don't know. I haven't actually watched that many screwball comedies. My parents tried to show me "Bringing Up Baby," but I found Catherine Hepburn's character really annoying, so we didn't finish watching it. <laughs>
0: Let's dive into the plot of this because we needed to take a day after watching it in order to just process it. Because His Girl Friday crams the plots of three movies into ninety minutes.
1: Yeah, I felt like I. Had just gotten off one of those spinning carnival rides and I continued to, you know, feel a little dizzy afterwards because it moved so quickly. I mean, I I like this movie. I had a great time watching it. But yeah, I definitely wanted a break before we started recording.
0: This film takes place in the past, but not really. Uh, In order to get around Hayes Code censorship, which I'll be getting into more detail later on, there's a prologue telling you that this takes place in the distant past where politicians were crooked, uh, (laughs) the, the sheriff was prone to graft, and the news media are filled with sensationalist parasites, not like now. It's been reformed. It's better now. And mind
1: you, this was made in 1940, and now here we are laughing uncomfortably at 2021 and Fox News and other things we're not going to talk about.
0: <laughs> and while it isn't as easy to tell now as it was back then, His Girl Friday makes absolutely no effort to make itself a period piece. Everything there is incredibly contemporary.
1: Since when it came out.
0: Yeah. Alright, we open with Walter Burns, played by Cary Grant. He is the gruff editor of the Morning Post. He learns, through a long, woundabout argument, lots of that going on in this movie, that his <laughs> ex-wife and former star reporter uh, Hildegard Hildy Johnson, played by Rosalind Russell, is about to marry the dull insurance man Bruce Baldwin, who's played by Ralph Bellamy.
1: I have to say, though, is that it's been a very long time since I've seen anything where Cary Grant looks super young. And I was like, whoa, wow! <laughs>
0: I mean, he ages very gracefully, yeah, but...
1: Yeah, that's true, but it's like, he's super young, it's just kind of like, I don't know. Uh,
0: he, he was 35 when they were shooting the film.
1: Well, he looks very young, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 35 is old.
0: Yeah, Hildy is planning to marry Bruce and retire to suburban life outside of Albany, New York. Determined to sabotage the nuptials, Burns exploits Hildy's obsession with getting a juicy scoop by trying to entice her to cover one last story the high-profile execution of Earl Williams, played by John Quaylen, a shy bookkeeper convicted of murdering a black police officer. You see, both the mayor and the sheriff want this guy to swing at the gallows because they're both dependent upon the African-American vote to secure re-election.
1: This is definitely something we're going to talk about later, right? Yes. Yeah. Anyway.
0: Yeah, Walter browbeats Bruce and Hilde into, you know, letting him take them to lunch. During that meal, Walter insists that Williams is falsely accused and that Hildy is the only available person who is savvy enough to clear him with a journalistic expertise. Burns uses several underhanded tactics to try to trick Hildy into going along, but she is not fooled by any of them. She knows him of old, as she flat out says.
1: Yeah, and her husband, her, well, her fiancé, he kind of takes him at face value because he's just so charming.
0: Bruce is a bit dim.
1: Yeah, he is.
0: Ultimately, Hildy complies when Burns agrees to take out a $100,000 life insurance policy from Baldwin, therefore getting him a $1,000 commission. A lot of money. Which he does not actually pay. (laughs) Soon afterwards, Walter plants a watch on Bruce and gets him arrested for theft, therefore just getting him out of the way. Setting up a running guard where Walter just keeps getting Bruce arrested. Hmm. Hildy gets things starting by bribing a prison guard in order to get an interview with Williams.
1: She's like, oh, is this your money? Did you drop this? I was like, real subtle, but the guy eats it up anyway.
0: Yeah, we're going to get a lot of this. This is a very ambiguous film. The convicted murderer it might be the most innocent figure in the movie. Aside from Bruce.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Bruce is a patsy.
1: Yes, he is.
0: She sits down with Williams. He insists that he shot the officer accidentally. Hilde begins coaching him into using production for use to explain the shooting, therefore making Williams come off like he's unhinged and that an insanity defense would be plausible, therefore earning a reprieve from the governor. To be real quick on this, production for use is an element of Marxist ideology, is usually used to distinguish communism from socialism. The idea that if a good or product is manufactured, it has to have a use to it. Hilde coaches Williams to say, oh, he had a gun, and the point of the gun is to shoot it, so if it was produced, he must use it, which is a crazy misattribution of what production for use means. Yeah, I
1: was like, there's a lot of talk about them red communists, them commies in this movie. And I'm like, all right, it's kind of early for that, but I, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, the first major red scare was just after World War I. It, it's, it's still there.
1: Yeah, but it's 1940s. It's about to be World War II. Uh, the commies are about to be our friends, yeah, quote but, unquote, for a short period of time. But not yet. Yeah. <laughs> Another
0: thing that makes this film not even pretending to have a period setting mm. is that there are direct references to Hitler.
1: Oh, yeah, there's a European war happening right now.
0: Burns goes through a lot more trouble to keep Hildy from leaving the story and getting married, as I mentioned before. He uh, sets up Baldwin to get jailed for stealing a watch at first, forcing Hildy to bail him out. And while that's going on, Williams escapes from the bumbling sheriff. This occurs because <laughs> the sheriff and the psychiatrist is supposed to, you know, interview him once again He's for his competency. Kid. The sheriff hands Williams a gun. A loaded then,
1: gun! Yeah, which
0: he uses to shoot his way out.
1: Okay, when he said that, where did he shoot the, um... the Sheriff, not the sheriff, the psych. What did he What did he call it again? He shot him in the what?
0: Oh, God, I'm totally blanking on it.
1: Yeah, but whatever it was, it made me think, oh, he shot him in the balls, but they just couldn't say that.
0: Uh, yes, Uh <laughs> I'll mention this more on the production side of this, but Hawks hired a number of people to doctor the script, one of whom was there to put in things that could slip through the haze Code. Once again, more on that later. Hilde repeats her attempt to retire, but the lure of a juicy byline proves to be too much for her. Her suspicions about Burns are confirmed when he gets Baldwin arrested once again, basically the moment he gets Baldwin out of jail. This time, he gets one of his female acquaintances to bump into him on the street and then accuse him of mashing her, which is a 1940s term for groping.
1: Yeah, I was like, is he talking about some kind of sexual assault here? And I'm like, oh, yeah, he is. Or you know what I actually thought? I thought they were arresting him for solicitation until he said mashing. No, wait, so is solicitation when you're the one wanting the job or performing it?
0: Soliciting is when you are offering the service. Oh,
1: okay. All right. Yeah, I had to look up the difference between symbolism and symbology earlier this week. So I'm trying to make sure that everything stays accurate.
0: Hildy is in the newsroom alone while everyone else is hunting down leads when Williams himself enters with the gun trained on her.
1: Yeah, that seems actually pretty tense because, I mean, I kind of assumed that she would be fine because it's, you know, a code movie and, you know, the bad guy has to be punished. But it still is pretty tense because she's, like, very calm and controlled trying to talk him down.
0: And he's very skittish. And he, he ends up turning around and shooting at a pigeon, which is his last bullet.
1: Yeah, and then she wrenches the gun away from him. And also, should we talk about the fact that Rosalind Russell is very tall, and she's wearing heels, and the guy who plays William Earl Williams, like he's he's small.
0: Yeah, he's a tiny itty bitty <laughs> character actor. He's essentially brought in whenever the the movies needed a guy to play a nervous Scandinavian.
1: All right, works.
0: Nice work if you can get it. <laughs> While she is talking to Williams, she ignores Baldwin's phone calls and largely because having Williams in the press room is too good an opportunity to pass up. This is based (laughs) on a real-life incident where an escaped fugitive (laughs) found his way into a newsroom and the reporters kept him in there despite the police looking for him and didn't turn him over until after they got a story out of him.
1: That's very, uh, ethical.
0: Williams' friend Molly stops by. She is angry because her brief acquaintance with Williams was jazzed up by reporters trying to add a sensationalistic sex element to it.
1: Yeah, she's really pissed off. She still feels bad for Williams, and he's also annoyed that her kind act has been perverted into this.
0: She even sent him flowers at the gallows. Yeah, I
1: guess she felt sorry for him.
0: You know, when other reporters knock at the door, Hildy hides Williams in the roll-top desk. <laughs> the building is soon surrounded by press and police officers who are looking for Williams. Hildy is then accosted by Baldwin's mother. She is outraged at Hildy for blowing off her son the day before their wedding, leaving him in jail for his trumped-up mashing charge. Yeah,
1: and it's kind of funny, though, the whole times that Walter is really poking fun at the fact that they're gonna go up on a sleeper car together, but, oh, don't worry, Mother's going to be there as the chaperone, and he's still, like, milking that for all it's worth, because she calls her mother, and her mother is deceased, but Walter's mother is alive, so he thinks that pretty funny.
0: <laughs> Upon being badgered by reporters for Williams' location, Molly just loses it and leaps out the window, although she ends up surviving. Yeah,
1: I kind of figured that she was going to survive because having her commit suicide is just a little too dark for a movie made in 1940 with the Hayes Code.
0: Meanwhile, the sheriff and the mayor are approached by a messenger who has a reprieve from the governor. Turns out that insanity plea was going to work after all. The mayor and the sheriff, however, as I mentioned already, need this guy to swing in order to secure their election chances, so they try to bribe him with a cushy civil service job in order to, like, go away and get delayed and not come back until it's too late.
1: Yeah, but Pettybone, as he repeatedly has to say his name is, he's too dumb to fool.
0: <laughs> More or less, yes.
1: Yeah, he, he's great, but he's just kind of a big, he's just a big dope. He reminds me of like, what? Which, which one's the fat one, Laurel and Hardy? You
0: know what, I, I, Laurel and Hardy is one of those things that I keep oh, okay. getting around well, to. okay, what about
1: Abbott and Castell? He looks like, no, it's. Costello's the fat one. Yeah,
0: Costello's the chubby okay, one. Yeah,
1: I used to watch those when I was a kid. Yeah, he kinda he had like a little, you know, bowler hat, mm-hmm. little mustache.
0: Annoyed by Mrs. Baldwin's continued uh, protestations over her son, which no one in that room gives a shit about, <laughs> Walter has his colleague Diamond Louie remove her.
1: Yeah, by removing her means that this tiny, he is also a short dude, hurls this grande dame over his shoulder, Walter shoves a gag in her mouth, and he carries her away. <laughs> yeah, this is,
0: this is that kind of a party. Yeah. <laughs> Hildy begins expressing that she should really get Bruce out of jail at this point, but it doesn't take much for Burns to get her back onto the story. Now, Baldwin comes in as she is typing it up. He had gotten bail money wired to him. Hildy is far too focused upon writing out the story to notice her fiancé, so uh, he gives up in frustration and grabs the train to Albany without her. Diamond Louie enters in with torn clothes. He'd gotten into a car accident while escorting Mrs. Baldwin. (laughs) And is completely unaware of her condition. He ran into a whole bunch of cop cars, so it doesn't take much for the police to enter, including the sheriff. See, Mrs. Baldwin had survived and now insists that Walter had kidnapped her, which puts him in a bit of a pickle.
1: <laughs> and then he's like, "Get out!"
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, yes, that's when you see a wild gift yeah, uh, yeah, in, like, like in its natural habitat.
1: It's natural habitat. Yeah, <laughs> it's the like Cary Grant going, "Get out!" Waving his hand. That's what it's from. It's from My Girl Friday. <laughs>
0: The mayor and the sheriff are closing in on Walter, but then the messenger comes in and he starts blurting out all this stuff about attempting to be bribed to delay the message and the sheriff's gun wound up in uh, Williams' possession and that's how he was able to shoot his way out and all this other stuff that is very politically embarrassing. Mm -hmm. At this point, the mayor and the sheriff begin implying that, hey, if you look the other way, maybe we'll just let the kidnapping charge go.
1: Yeah. (laughs)
0: Walter and Hildy don't quite bite, we need to dance around that a little bit, but Mm -hmm. it's not difficult to imagine that a certain corrupt bargain might be enacted sometimes after this film concludes its story. Yes. Hildy gets yet another call from Bruce. Uh, he is back in jail for passing a counterfeit note on the train. No. You see, earlier in the movie, Hildy insisted that Bruce give her all of his money in order, so you know Walter wouldn't be able to scam him out of it because Hildy knows him of old.
1: Yeah, my question is, is that in my job, I have to check every bill that's larger than a 20 and we don't take old hundred dollar bills yet. How do you, I'm going to assume that back in the day in order we to check if something is counterfeit was probably easier than man. Bruce really should have looked at that money a little bit more closely.
0: Hildy ends up bribing a guard during Williams' escape mm-hmm. in order to get. You know, the story of how he got the gun away. She insists that Walter pay back the money that she used to do that. He hands off counterfeit money, figuring that he could use that to get Bruce in trouble later on. Then kind of forgets about it. Mm -hmm. Until Bruce is about to take the train. But he's like, eh, whatever, why not? (laughs) At this point, Walter has decided to give up on tricking Hildy into getting back to the newsroom. And he's about to let her go. Which spurs her to break down crying. Mm-hmm. You see, Hilde uh, admitted that a part of her really wanted Burns to fight for her, and at this revelation, Burns sends Baldwin the bail money, and they just up and decide to get remarried again.
1: <laughs> it's gonna work
0: this time. Burns promises to take Hilde to Niagara a fabulous, yeah, fabulous honeymoon in Niagara Falls, the, the honeymoon that he never took her to the first place because he's too married to his own work. <laughs> However, he immediately learns about a hot story in Albany, and the two rush off to cover it
1: yeah uh, Hildy's honestly kind of disappointed that they're gonna go to Albany I mean I like Albany I lived there for when I was in college but like (laughs) she's still just like oh all right I guess I guess
0: we're going to Albany. Walter quips, Hey, do you think Bruce can put us up? And that's the last line in uh, the movie. Yes. The last line in uh, the source material is That son of a bitch stole my watch.
1: <laughs> which
0: they couldn't use, although they snuck the watch thing in elsewhere.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, after a couple of false starts, which I'll get to, they eventually settled on Hey, do you think Bruce can put us up? And they decided, eh, That's that, the best line.
1: You know what? It's funny. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All
0: right, and that's the film, or at least the best way I can encapsulate it. Yeah, there's a lot going on There's there. a lot,
1: and it, it moves very quickly. And like honestly, there's like a scene uh, later on um, after Bali jumps out the window. It's quiet, and like it's such a noticeable quiet. Because you know they just watched something kind of disturbing happen, and the reporters, and it's kind of their fault for you know kind of destroying this woman's you know sense of self. It just it's very eerie, constant noise and motion.
0: Yeah, there's a part earlier in the film where uh, Hildy chastises her male colleagues for going full yellow journalism on Molly, and mm-hmm. there's just this awkward pause that lasts forty five seconds, which is an eternity in his Girl Friday oh. time.
1: Yeah, it is. Like, one, one person says one thing, the other person says the other. They talk over each other. Holy shit. Bicker, 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 bicker. Ah!
0: Yeah, let's get into the development for from this. Uh, mm-hmm. His Girl Friday is adapted from the front page, a 1928 play by uh, Ben Hetch and Charles MacArthur. The play had already gotten a film adaptation in 1931, and a very popular one. Howard Hawks is a big fan of the original play, and he pitched a remake to producer Harry Cohn while shooting Only Angels Have Wings in 1939. Cary Grant was cast pretty much immediately to play the reporter, with Walter Winchell supposedly playing the editor. Now, there are conflicting accounts over how they altered the front page for for the reporter to be a lady, because the reporter is a Ripley. Started out as a man, and then they decided to cast a woman in the part.
1: You know what, honestly, though, I can't imagine how boring it would have been just to have two guys with no sort of tension. I mean, if we're watching, like... We reviewed Rope. It's kind of cool watching a movie with some, you know, definitely intentional homoerotic undertones, but I can't imagine that they would do that in a movie that is so purposeful. Like, what, what's even the dynamic of this arguing? Does he want to go out, does the reporter want to go off and be with his bride and his boss doesn't want to let him leave? Like, that sounds pretty gay to me.
0: But, uh, yeah, there are two accounts as to how the gender swap occurred. One is Howard Hawks throwing a dinner party where, after everyone had a couple of drinks, he starts talking (laughs) about how the front page has, like, the perfect dialogue in any recent play or film and just has people at the party just read the parts out just, Mm -hmm. just for a laugh. And a lady read the part of the reporter. He's like, hey, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, maybe we should have a woman read it and not have it be a sausage fest.
0: The other account is, while auditioning actors for the film, Hawks had his female secretary read the parts of the reporter, and then Hawks found that he liked the reporter's dialogue in a lady's voice and had the script revised in order to make the reporter female and divorced from the editor.
1: Because, you know, if we only have sex when we're married, and if you want to employ, as you said when describing this movie to me, a sexual path, they have to be married and then divorced.
0: Hawkes got approval from the front page's original authors in January of 1939. While Hawkes was a big fan of the play, he still had more than half the lines in the play altered. (laughs) Hecht and MacArthur were unavailable to write the screenplay, so Hawks hired Charles Lederer, who worked on the 1931 film, Mm -hmm. and he's the one who came up with the divorce angle. Once again, good way to have them have a sexual past.
1: I mean, there is a line in there that kind of implies that one story that they were investigating, and he's like, oh, and that was the time we were at the hotel, and you and I, and I'm like, that's when they boned the first time. We can't (laughs) say that because of the Hays (laughs) Cove.
0: Maury Riskin was brought in to punch up the dialogue and provide innuendo that could skirt around the Hays Code, as mm-hmm. I mentioned before. The film setting was moved into the past in order to imply that the more unscrupulous activities of politicians, law enforcement agents, and reporters <laughs> were from a more corrupt time and have since been reformed. Oh,
1: no! Yeah, the
0: Hays censors were annoyed by this, but eventually let it slide.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel like with like some weird like censorship issues, you don't know, it's, like, you'd have to give them something else to complain about, to skirt past something else, if you can try to sneak past.
0: Ricekins uh, had written a different ending than the one we see in the film. His original was of Walter and Hilde uh, arguing immediately after proclaiming their I-dos and an impromptu marriage in the newsroom, prompting a reporter to quip, I bet it will work out fine this time.
1: That That's a downer ending right there, I gotta say. <laughs>
0: yeah, this ending was cast out when Rice King discovered that another film on the other side of the lot was using pretty much the exact same ending.
1: Yeah, I don't want to do that.
0: All right, for the casting, Hawks initially wanted Carol Lombard to play Hildy, but she was too expensive. I
1: can see that, and I can also see that.
0: Yeah. Catherine Hepburn, Claudette Colbert, Irene Dunn, and Ginger Rogers all rejected the part.
1: Catherine Hepburn would have made a pretty good Hildy, though.
0: I think pretty much all of them would have worked.
1: Oh, yes.
0: Rogers was asked about it afterwards. She said she would have readily accepted the part if she knew that the other main part was being played by Larry Grant. (laughs) Joan Crawford was also considered, but she didn't get too far.
1: No wire hangers!
0: This is a little while before how wire hangers yes. (laughs) Hawks eventually settled on Rosalind Russell, who was uh, on loan from MGM at the time, and who had just come off a very acclaimed turn in the film The Women. Where she acted opposite Joan Crawford.
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> Russell was upset when she learned that she was far from Hawks's first choice. I'd
1: be happy to like have a job.
0: In her autobiography, the chapter on this film is entitled "If Memory Serves, I Should Have Written This Down." Back door to his girl Friday. How I was everyone's fifteenth choice.
1: Oh. <laughs> That's pretty funny though.
0: Yeah, when she first met Hawks in his office, uh, she decided to demonstrate her apathy by going for a swim beforehand and not bothering to dry her hair.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a big deal. Like, I don't know about about you, but uh, there's some women who won't leave the house with wet hair.
0: Hawks was taken aback. Then Russell brought up the casting concern. He dismissed her reservations and told her to get the wardrobe. Yeah! Famously, Howard Hawks encouraged his actors to ad-lib and step on each other's lines. Uh, this is only really the second or third film in which characters interrupt each other with any degree of regularity. Yeah, energy. I thought
1: it, was, it felt very modern to me. I mean, you told me that the dialogue moved fast, and I was like, eh, Ryan's just being facetious, and I was like, no, he was not. <laughs>
0: Russell was uncomfortable with Hawks since uh, he wasn't commenting on her performance and was acting really cold uh, in between takes. Cary Grant tried to reassure her that if he's not saying anything, that means he, that you're doing fine.
1: Um, that's very anxiety inducing.
0: She approached Hawks about it, anyways, and Hawks very curtly responded I like the way you're beating up on Grant. Keep at it.
1: <laughs> Good.
0: Hawks is very frequently a hands-off director. He is famously not somebody who has a lot of obvious visual cues. The only main signifiers for Howard Hawks movies is lots of back and forth dialogue Mm -hmm. and the archetypical Hawksian woman, who, like Hildy, is very tough and assertive, and professional and independent, yet still feminine.
1: Yeah, I really liked Hildy. I thought I think she's still a great character. Now,
0: (laughs) yeah, most of Hawks's films have a Hildy type character Mm -hmm. in them, and he has a very diverse catalog. He did westerns, he did science fiction films. The original version of The Thing was probably shadow directed by him.
1: All right, cool, cool. Yeah, he
0: did musicals, screwball comedies, period dramas. Gentlemen prefer blondes. I
1: haven't actually seen that. Hey, future podcast
0: episode. It's a good one. I would definitely do it. (laughs) Russell thought that Grant had more good lines than she did, so she hired an ad writer to work up some quips for her to improvise scare quotes (laughs) during uh, production. Grant caught on to this and would playfully tease Russell every morning with a greeting of, what have you got today?
1: Yeah, honestly, though, I think that Hildy is the juicier part than Walter, although Walter's great, but Hildy definitely has more screen time than he does.
0: A multi track sound recording didn't exist until 1955, which puts Ouch. a hamper into the way that the dialogue was done in this film. Mm-hmm. Instead of using one overhead mic, Hawks had multiple mics set up. However, not all of those mics could be live at the same time. So the sound guy had to switch back and forth between mics, depending on which ones were being used. And since the actors were encouraged to improvise lines and walk around the stage without any kind of free direction, this threw a lot of hampers into it. Sometimes the microphones needed to be changed 35 times in a single scene. Yeah, Um, I feel
1: bad for the sound guy. That sounds like an exercise in frustration. I'd be like, they're moving again. Stop it.
0: The cameraman was also frustrated because, once again, the actress would walk around willy-nilly without any kind of predetermined direction. Yeah. And furthermore, Russell uh, apparently had a somewhat weak jawline Mm -hmm. and needed careful lighting for her to look youthful, at least by 1940 standards. So, that was a nightmare for the cameraman. Eventually, the makeup guy just took the pencil and just drew underneath her chin so she would have a strong shadow under her jawline no matter (laughs) what. Okay,
1: that's actually kind of funny. But, like, youthful, like, how old was she when this movie was made? She must have been pretty young.
0: She was in her late 20s, early 30s. Okay,
1: well, in your late 20s back then that you were an old bag, so...
0: (laughs) Yeah, people thought that Russell was a bit jowly
1: but I'm an old bag. I'm 28.
0: <laughs> All of those various things formed a perfect storm of frustration for the crew. The launch scene in particular was a nightmare for them.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that this was like the... I mean, I, I think the crew members would have to kind of... Hopefully would appreciate that they're on a groundbreaking movie, but yeah, I would be annoyed at like the constant changes that aren't quite easily done by the technology of the time
0: because of the logistics this film ran seven days late
1: only seven days
0: yeah yeah it doesn't seem like much especially when you compare <laughs> to like certain other films but
1: I'm like, only seven that's nothing
0: <laughs> as we've mentioned already quite a bit his girl friday's dialogue flows at a pretty rapid rate it is clocked in at about 240 words per minute, to put that in perspective. The typical Hollywood film of this era had about 90 words per minute, and the average for a real-life American conversation is 140 words per minute.
1: Yeah, I mean, just their opening argument, neither of them are getting, neither Hildy or Walter are letting the opposite get a word in edge-wise, especially Walter to Hildy, probably because he knows that she's about to give him some bad news.
0: Hawks was allegedly trying to beat the record for verbiage in a film with His Girl Friday. I, Did he? Did it work? A record set by the front page.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Reportedly, Hawks put His Girl Friday in the front page side by side and sped them up so he would beat it.
1: Well, if you gotta know, you gotta know. Yep.
0: Yeah. While all of the film's actors ad-libbed, Cary Grant did more uh, than anyone else, he very clearly enjoys himself throughout this entire film. The most infamous ad-libs all come from him. Possibly the most well-known is when he refers to Bruce as a guy who looks like that fella from the movies. You know, Ralph Bellamy.
1: You mean... (laughs) Him. <laughs> yes. Uh,
0: producer Cohn felt that the line was too cheeky and cutesy, but Hawks fought to keep it in, and it ended up being one of the one that got the most consistent laughs and test screenings. Uh, later on, Grant describes a horrendous fate suffered by an acquaintance named Archie Leach, which is Carrie Grant's birth name. I know I
1: was like Archie Leach, he's making a joke about himself. <laughs>
0: Yeah, while Williams is stuffed in the rollout desk, he tries to get out, spurring Grant to insult him by calling him a mock turtle. This is possibly a reference to the front page's line of, you goddamn turtle, which, since the front page is pre-code, they are allowed to use. (laughs) Although, I I think that's only in the stage play, not the film. I should really see the front page at some point or another. However, some people believe that Grant used the term "mock turtle" because he played the mock turtle in a 1933 film version of *Alice in Wonderland*.
1: That makes sense.
0: All right for the release and reception of this film, uh, the film was rush released, and the reviews were largely positive. Almost everyone liked it. Even people who were getting kind of sick at the front page. That film was a big hit, and lots of other movies were ripping it off. Yeah. His Girl Friday was just the first official remake.
1: But different. It's got a lady in it.
0: There are a couple of detractors. Once again, some of them were kind of sick of the riffs on the front page. Although, as you said, most of the people gave it a pass because in this one, the reporter's a lady.
1: Yeah, it's a lady in there. It's tension.
0: Yeah, yeah their arguments have a sexual tension. <laughs> and some people thought that Cary Grant was miscast, which seems ridiculous, but
1: really, he's perfect. I can't imagine any other contemporary actor playing that role with enough. A- Harm as Cary Grant, because I feel like if you had a different actor or you played him just a little differently, he would come across as a bully. I mean, he is a bully, but like an unfun bully.
0: A lot of people suggested that Clark Gable would have done a better job.
1: I can see that. Yeah,
0: I can see Clark Gable making it work, but yeah, Grant crushes it. Mm-hmm. The film was a financial disappointment. And uh, it was completely ignored at the Oscars by uh, the film that buried it, which is The Philadelphia Story, Okay, another romantic comedy where Cary Grant is trying to win his ex-wife back.
1: Okay, okay. I gotta say, though, if anything was going to beat this, that's a good one to have beaten. And that's another movie that definitely plays around with the censors.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The rehabilitation of His Girl Friday's reputation occurred when Columbia forgot to renew the film's copyright in 1968 and it lapsed into the public domain. Like It's a Wonderful Life, His Girl Friday soon became a popular choice for TV stations looking for inexpensive time slot filler. Constant reruns led to a growing cult audience and a cultural reappraisal. Now it is considered a classic film and one of the formative uh, screwball comedies. It was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress in 1993. However, because it's in the public domain, there are more than a few crappy screen transfers. The version that we watched on Amazon was not very good.
1: Yeah, everyone looked a little hazy.
0: There was a 2017 Criterion restoration, which I should get at some point, because I'm sure it's immaculate.
1: Oh, yes, I'd rather give that money to the criterion collection than the big a which is my enemy now
0: <laughs> I mean at least Amazon didn't have the temerity to charge us to watch his girlfriend yeah uh,
1: yeah that that's true but it's like I work at an independent bookstore so I gotta like you know find Amazon
0: yeah I should have gone to YouTube you know because they're <laughs> owned by Google a much smaller company uh, <laughs> there's no way to win folks. <laughs>
1: There's no ethical consumption under capitalism.
0: <laughs> All right, let's uh, get into the cast of this film. Mm-hmm. If there's anything more to be yeah. said about Cary Grant as Walter Burns, he's fantastic in this. I, I love Cary Grant. He's oh, yeah. super charming, even in movies I don't like. And yes. This is a very good movie that he is very good in.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always liked him in um, I Was a Male War Bride, where he plays this French guy. Yeah, I know. This <laughs> friend, this free French officer um, has a long-standing flirtation with this female army officer, and they go on one last little adventure together in, you know, now free France, and they fall in love and they got to get married. But the problem is that all of, like, the let's take your war bride home are for women. So he has to be like... I am the spouse of a female army officer. I am a male war bride, and they just had to go through all of the bureaucracy, including dressing in drag. It's pretty funny.
0: Grant's transatlantic accent, yes. uh, the way where he's incapable of saying a line without it coming off as rye. This part <laughs> just plays shamelessly to his strengths. Yes. <laughs> then we get to uh, Rosalind Russell She's as Hilda great. Johnson. I mean, I have a really hard time believing still that she was, like, the 15th choice. Yeah, no, she's
1: perfect in this movie. She's amazing. She's got poise, attitude, fashion sense, a nice good old fuck you attitude that never gets old.
0: Yeah, as mentioned in the uh, When Romance Meant Comedy column at the A.V. Club, she owns this film the second she walks in mm-hmm. with that loud, look-at-me-I'm-important dress, complete with hat.
1: With that hat. I was like, that hat is so stupid-looking, but she makes it work.
0: <laughs> I'd like to see like an early version of the script before all the ad-libs are thrown in, because maybe Hildy wasn't a great part, and maybe all of those ad copy lines that Russell threw in is what elevated it.
1: Yeah,
0: maybe. Well, yeah, next we have uh, Ralph Bellamy as Bruce Baldwin, uh, who I think is often an overlooked part. He's but- a dope. Baldwin was initially a possessive jerk in earlier drafts of this film, but was rewritten to be a comedic patsy.
1: Yeah, and like, if he was a jerk, and you could not have had him as a jerk, and to have Hildy put up with his nonsense for two seconds, it would not be believable. It is believable to me that she would decide that, hey, you know what, I'm going to marry this bland potato of a man. <laughs>
0: Yeah, he he clearly adores me, and he has a normal, stable job, and it doesn't run his life. He can leave his work home with him. That can be attractive after divorcing Walter. It makes sense that she would go to him as the rebound. And while many rom-coms make the romantic rival a jerk in order to make the leads more bound to be together, I always encounter that as a bit of a cop-out. I always prefer it when the romantic rival is actually somebody you you don't really hate that much. Yeah,
1: honestly, that is one of my biggest beefs with any sort of, like, romantic storytelling. And uh, I definitely gotta say, like, I don't like the whole disposable fiancé trope or disposable boyfriend. Like, it's just, it it is a cop-out. And, like, and I even think that making them too likable can have its problems. Like, did we talk about this, like, off a podcast or during a podcast where I talked about...
0: We did in uh, When Harry Met Sally. Oh, When least. Harry
1: Met Sally. About how you it's hard for me to, to like Jim after what he does to... God bless her name. Karen Filipelli, almost called her Rachel, but she's Rachel in the British version. Yeah, because I was like, she was so nice and he dumped her. And we can't even watch it happen because we'd all hate him.
0: Yeah. <laughs> But Yeah, getting back to Bellamy working better as a patsy than as a jackass. It's funnier
1: watching, you know, basically him get screwed up all the time.
0: <laughs> but another way that it serves Hildy's character is that Bruce's inability to match pace with Hildy is a good indication of how Hildy isn't meant for Bruce. Because at yeah. the very beginning of the film, she's like, oh, I'll be back in ten minutes," and he tries to throw out a smooth one and be like, 10 minutes is a long time to be away from you," and she stumbles like, "What?" Yeah, she's like,
1: "Say it again." I just wanted to hear you say it again. And then she's just like, blah, 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 blah. "Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah." Yeah, yeah. She and Walter are like back and forth, back and forth, just erotic tennis match. I'm like, "Yeah, that." That's where the fire's at. (laughs) That was that potato. Mm -hmm. This film has a very tight bench of supporting players. Uh, Oh, yeah. yeah, The various press reporters, all of them get at least a couple of decent quips to throw out. You know, getting shot out by the cops. Like, (laughs) watch where you're aiming that thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and then there's, you know, Petty Bone, who I think that guy enjoyed every scene he was in.
0: (laughs) The two people I wanted to highlight specifically was uh, John and his Earl Williams. Oh, yes. And I said, he might be the most innocent character in the film, aside from Baldwin.
1: Yeah.
0: And it, it is really hard, because this is a guy who shot a black police officer. Yeah. And they're trying to write him off as this harmless nut case. Mm-hmm. And the film sells that really hard, and you're willing to believe it if you're willing to ignore, say modern 2021 context
1: yeah i mean i i think sometimes you you do you can and should judge things by the standards of today but also it's good to take a look at not to like let it go but to kind of i guess under the context, understand the context in which it was made but you still should be able to criticize it Especially in today's world when what's literally happening right now as we record this episode.
0: Yeah, this has come up a couple of times before mm-hmm. because, you know, we're, th- we're throwing disclaimers in front of classic films. Yeah. that have racial slurs in it and there's a mm-hmm. sort of reactionary movement against that. And one of the reasons why it's so much more prevalent is because we live in a post-streaming landscape where everything is available at the click of a button. Yeah. If you want to watch His Girl Friday, you don't have to track it down anymore. You can just look it up on YouTube, Mm -hmm. or there are 15 different rough edits on Amazon and various other places. So you could just be a kid who's like, hey, Muppets, but then why is Johnny Cash in front of the pro-slavery flag? Was Johnny Cash a reactionary neo-Confederate?
1: Yeah, yeah, you
0: need somebody to explain it to them. You're like, you yeah, know, back in the 1970s, the Confederate flag was in white spaces considered a fairly anodyne symbol. People would willfully ignore the underpinnings that it has always had. But now, whereas now it is not possible to do that. Because
1: really, really, really bad people have now taken it and it's a point that um like white supremacists and other bigots in other countries use it because they can't have Nazi flags.
0: So, yeah, getting back to the cast <laughs> yes. of this, uh, Helen Mack as Molly Molloy, another small part, but she gives a very 1940s intonation to her parts. Oh, yes. And I think one of the more important scenes in the film, I, I mentioned it before, is the one where Hildy escorts Molly away from the reporters who had scandalized her brief acquaintance with Williams, mm-hmm. and once again, the film pauses for almost a minute, which is like glacial timing in yeah, Historical Friday. Yeah, like- and she's giving a melodrama performance mm-hmm. in this, and it's weird because his girl Friday has a lot of tonal shifts, which usually yeah. can throw me off track. But I'm willing to ride along with it because this is moving so fast, it's and it's throwing move into
1: another thing in just a second.
0: It, yeah, it's throwing five things at you every moment or so, so you just kind of have to like hold on tight and go along with it. Yeah. Mac adds to her uh, handful of scenes quite well. This is uh, mm-hmm. one of her last roles before transitioning to radio.
1: That doesn't surprise me. She
0: was a lifer. She, she was a child actress in the silent era. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I, if,
1: you, if you're good at it, you're good at it, you like it, you like it, and, some bits of job.
0: It was mostly minor supporting roles for her uh, when the talkie era came up. Mm-hmm. Aside from His Girl Friday, her next major part was in uh, Son of Kong. Okay, I
1: wouldn't mind acting up next to a big gorilla.
0: No, uh, but not as big as the prior film. <laughs> All right, and that brings us to the themes. First one I wrote down was political and law enforcement corruption slash graft, which, Ooh, yeah. which is a careful thing for the Hayes Code, because as Rachel mentioned before. The Hayes Code required all authority figures to be treated with dignity and respect, and furthermore, all lawbreakers were to receive comeuppance. The overall image that Hollywood movies were forced to uh, portray during the entirety of the Hayes Code's existence was that the status quo is just, and that the system works, and that if a bad apple happens to come along into a position of power, they will be dealt with appropriately. They Mm -hmm. will not escape justice. And... That is laughable then. It is laughable now. It'll be laughable for the foreseeable future. But yeah, that's mean, what you have to work with.
1: I think probably the, one of the um, biggest examples out of the Hayes Code really changing a movie is what happens with Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. Um, in the original novel, Maxim kills Rebecca in, like, in, you know, suicide by cop kind of thing, where she goes into shooting her, which he does, and he hides her body. And But in the novel, the protagonist, the second Mrs. DeWinter, is like, alright, I'll lie for you. He, he always loved me. He didn't love Rebecca, because she was in a Abusive person. But in the Hitchcock movie, it's like he accidentally shoved Rebecca and she hit her head and it was an accident. So Maxim is able to go off to spend the rest of his life with the protagonist without getting any sort of legal comeuppance.
0: Yeah, in the case of His Girl Friday, the thing that they have to dance around the haze Code the most with is that pretty much all the subtext of His Girl Friday's plot is a riff on Chicago machine politics, mm-hmm. which was still fresh in everyone's mind because the reign of Al Capone was not that long ago in 1940. And you know we have this uh, bumbling, uh, incompetent sheriff and this mayor who puts every relative, you know, on the payroll in some kind of cushy, low, yeah,
1: including his what is it? his childhood nurse or something. It has a job.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, they all they all get postmaster jobs. Yeah, and you should keep in mind while you're watching His Girl Friday that apologists for the spoil system were still around. See, back in the 19th century, it was considered. Expected and actually good, really, for every incoming administration to give cushy government jobs to their friends and allies who helped install yeah, them into the place.
1: Um, yeah, I'm from I'm from upstate New York. We learned about Tammany Hall and Charles Guiteau shot President Garfield because he was for no good reason expected to get a nice cushy government job.
0: And Boss Tweed was in living memory yep. in 1940. <laughs> So there are still people who are being like, Hey, that's not so bad. And his Girl Friday is just I, no, taunting is that sort bad. of thing.
1: It is bad. But
0: they have to do it while conforming to the Hays Code. Yeah. Hence the uh, fake period setting mm-hmm. and the little wink wink nudge nudge and innu- do innuendo everywhere.
1: Everybody got that?
0: This leads me to another point, censorship forcing creativity,
1: Mm -hmm. because when we're talking
0: about the sexual tension for His Girl Friday, it's it's common to classify this film as a romantic comedy or a screwball comedy, which... Some people consider a proto-rom-com. Mm-hmm. However, even after you factor out all of the uh, socio-political subtext and the murder trial and the stuff, the romantic aspect, which it never goes away entirely, is always one of four or five things that are also going on. Mm-hmm. And,
1: yeah, it's like, you yeah. can't look at it if you're looking at the other thing that's going on <laughs> over there.
0: <laughs> yeah, Walter and Hildy share one chaste kiss, which is yeah. about as much as they're allowed.
1: Yeah, he gives her a nice little polite goodbye kiss
0: yeah all signs of their attraction and the fact that neither of them is over the other is communicated solely through the subtext in the dialogue and never directly nothing can spur creativity quite like limitation
1: oh yeah that's why we have the bottle episode
0: <laughs> and yeah when you think about it the reconciliation of hilde and walter is very abrupt while things happen very fast in this film it happens incredibly fast at the uh oh, hey, we're getting married again. They're like, wait, what?
1: Yeah, uh, to be really honest, I thought that this movie took place over a longer time span than just a few hours.
0: Yeah, that brings me to my next point, feminist undertones. Mm-hmm. If you go to a film class and they talk about feminist film theory, His Girl Friday is often the first film they bring up, sometimes the only film they bring up, because mm-hmm. this can often be Baby's first feminist film. It's right out there. Because Hilde was initially written to be a male character, there are some aspects that probably wouldn't have been t- introduced to her if she had started out female from the get-go, Actually, as the When Romance Met Comedy column points out, The parts that they kept in uh, Hildy are sometimes more intriguing than the parts that they changed. For instance, Hildy remains an ace reporter who is admired and respected by her colleagues without any kind of qualifiers.
1: Yeah, she's never preferred to as, oh, that good lady reporter. (laughs) Yeah, and, and she also, she kind of fits in with her male colleagues without being into like the, I'm one of the boys and I'm not like other girls, which always Enrages me. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it doesn't step on that mine, or the, or she's good for, uh, for a female either.
1: It's just odd (laughs) considering
0: that this film came out over eighty years ago. Yeah. Another thing that the column points out is that. It is very clear that Hilde is choosing journalism over Bruce, not necessarily Walter over Bruce.
1: Yeah, but at least now she has a partner who supports her in her career, who wants to go out and do it with her. Yeah,
0: because, you know, when Walter is trying to win Hildy back, he isn't like, oh, I'm handsome, I'm charming, or I can take care of you, or I see things in you that other people don't. He's like, you have ink in your veins.
1: Yeah, no, he's like, I want to have, he wants (laughs) to have someone to go out with him and solve the cases. Like, it isn't like, White Christmas is great, but there's also that undercurrent of like, yeah, I'm going to marry this showbiz girl, and we're going to get married, and we're going to stay home. It's not like we're going to go on the town together and perform. You know, he, he doesn't ask her to like give up her career, even though he wants to and she wants to give up her career for I would definitely say not sexist reasons. She wants some stability, understandable. She wants a family understandable you know she doesn't want she wants to have a you know a life that she doesn't have to be on 24 7 even though she enjoys it she she likes being a reporter yeah
0: she can't stop herself she can't do it in moderation and she knows that
1: yeah she's trying to deny a part of herself so part of her plot point is not like accepting Walter over Bruce it's more like this is your life this is what makes you happy and as a bonus you have a partner who wants to go out and do it with
0: you. Yeah, that brings me to the last point I wanted to bring up. The uh ye old enemies to lovers trope <laughs> in, in, in rom-coms because everyone that loves it. Yeah, that one's as old as the hills. The, <laughs>
1: the, uh, and the hills. Let's be honest.
0: Oh, they hate each other, but guess what happens by the end of Act Two? Yes! Uh,
1: they fall in love.
0: And, yeah, his girl Friday winks at you, this is old even then, mm-hmm. as I've deeded a couple of times already. Hildy paraphrases Beatrice for Much Ado About Nothing, which yeah, we covered in covered. Prior episode. I freaking love
1: Much Ado About Nothing.
0: Yeah, when she says, don't listen to him, Bruce, I know him of old.
1: That's something that Beatrice says.
0: And <laughs> that made me take...
1: trick. You know me, I know you of old.
0: It makes me think a bit, it was like, a a lot of people try to compare Hildy to uh, Elizabeth from uh, Pride and Prejudice, which you could definitely do that, but there's Mm -hmm. a lot of Beatrice in her too. I
1: think there's definitely more Beatrice, because Elizabeth is very, like, type A, but Darcy is very type B. He's very shy And awkward and a lot of what kind of messes up the beginning of their relationship is his introversion, his anti-social nature and also having a hard time reading social cues.
0: Yeah, Walter and Hilda are both type A's.
1: Yeah, they are so type A's. But as a type and A and wo- Beatrice
0: and Benedict are both type A's.
1: Yeah, you know what? I, I will say as as a type A woman who dates a very type B person, a very type type B guy, you know, I I, I kinda like that, you know, I, I have this very like nice, steady rock of of a man that you know enjoys the fact that i am so type a and i have fun needling him because he's the perfect target for it he always knows how to tease me with my type a-ness
0: he's not a bruised potato
1: (laughs) no he's not no no, no
0: plant no watch on him (laughs) no way Well, that's everything in my notes. Is mm-hmm. there uh, anything about His Girl Friday that you'd like to touch upon mm-hmm. before we close?
1: Well, are we going to talk about the origin of the phrase, like, My Girl Friday? It comes from Robinson Crusoe. Oh, uh, yeah. The poor indigenous guy on the island before he shows up, he names him Friday. He's like, My Man Friday. <laughs> Although I always really liked the Perk of Vagrant uh, comic by Kate Beaton, which she drew a little short comic of what um, Robinson Crusoe is like from um, Friday's point of view, where he's like, this smelly guy showed up at my house. He tries to eat the food that will kill him. He's trying to make me his servant. This is really annoying, and it's just really funny.
0: Yeah, they went through a couple of title changes mm-hmm. before they settled on His Girl Friday. Hawks liked it because he thought that there was a um, an ironic undercurrent to it because the idea is that Hildy is Walter's employee, but he is not her boss.
1: Oh yeah, he is definitely not her boss at all. She bosses him around. <laughs> she she calls him what a, a big old monkey, and she's gonna beat him on his chimpanzee head. Like that part was pretty funny. This movie is funny. Like we were laughing like a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons I found one that had subtitles on it is because oh, this is gonna, this is going a mile a minute.
1: Yeah, I'm glad we had the subtitles on. I would have been like, eh, eh. <laughs> the the constant spinning motion that is this movie would have just been more of a constant spinning motion without it. But yeah, no, I'm glad I finally watched it. I'm really surprised that I did not watch it and in any film class I took in college. It took a lot. Yeah, it was good.
0: All right, that's one more episode in the can. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
1: Bye.